Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, get people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I am joined today by nobody because my co-host had to bail. I mean, we'll have a guest, but I don't have a co-host uh, because Karen couldn't make it at the last minute. Uh, I blame her for that, uh, but it's probably my fault, let's be honest. Uh, but I am excited today because I've been really getting into lately with this pandemic in particular, I've been getting a lot more into birds. Uh, I was an ichthyologist by training before I became a social scientist, uh, but I've got these kids and we love running around, looking at birds. My one year old daughter the other day heard a crow cawing and said, hi crows, and my heart melted. So now I like birds. Uh, and so today our guest uh, works for the National Audubon Society. Her name is Joanna Graham, but let's just go ahead. We'll do some interstitial music and then we'll bring her in. Our guest today is Dr. Joanna Grand, a senior spatial ecologist with the National Audubon Society. Joanna, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm really, like I said in the intro, happy to have you on, but I want to understand what it is you do. So what is a spatial ecologist exactly? Yeah, that's a, a great question and one that I get asked often. And um, it's not so easy to explain, but I will try. <laughs> So, so basically, the study of spatial ecology is is the study of how um, uh, organisms and landscapes are distributed across the surface of the planet. So, so as a spatial ecologist, I study that that spatial arrangement of um, of populations and landscapes and how they influence ecological dynamics and how, um, for example, more importantly, how humans uh, change and modify the distributions of those um, populations and landscapes and how that impacts species and and leads to um, uh, declines. So so sort sort of the main thing I guess that makes it spatial is you're looking over what you're calling landscapes. Like how what is a landscape? Is that just like a one field or is it much broader than that? How do, how do you even define a landscape in in the sense that you're using it? Yeah, a landscape can be any size, really. There's no limit. I mean, it can, and it sort of depends who's asking the question. So a landscape to an ant <laughs> could be very small, you know, could be your coffee cup uh, versus the entire planet could be a landscape, um, you know, depending depending on your perspective and what you're interested in studying. Yeah, I see. So so really, the space can can really vary. Um, and do the types of questions, I guess. So, so it seems like the types of questions you would ask about a coffee cup size landscape uh, might be, are they different from the ones you ask across a region or a, a continent or something? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, uh, as a um, spatial ecologist, mainly the data that we use to answer questions about, um, about modifications to the environment comes from uh, remotely sensed information. So we're we mostly look at very broad spatial scales, and um, and we get our information at that scale from satellites, okay. airplanes, drones, things that are uh, looking at the looking at the um, 
the planet from far away. Yeah. So one secret sort of theme to this podcast, it turns out, is the importance of all these data sources. Because whenever we talk to, or not whenever, but a lot of times when we talk to scientists, they're talking about all these data that they rely on. So so Audubon Society doesn't put out satellites, right? Are these, you know, things that are available from government or private cor- corporations or... Yeah, exactly. We don't we don't have our own satellites, yeah. um, but right, exactly. So there are hundreds, maybe thousands of satellites at any given time uh, orbiting the Earth, and and so we use the the free data comes usually from the federal government, and so mostly we use that. Yeah. Although there are um, private uh, corporations that also collect these data. Um, and often those data are um, available at higher resolution than the publicly available mm-hmm. data. Uh, but you have to pay for it. Yeah. So higher resolution means it's like a more fine grain uh, what's available. Exactly. Yeah. So like um, the Landsat satellite, uh, they take their imagery comes in at about 30 meter resolution. Um, whereas there are other more, uh, the corporate satellites might be much more um, high resolution than that. That's because the government saves the good stuff for the military, I suspect. Um, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or the NSA, uh, t- right. to whom I'm waving right now as they watch us record this. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so you work for Ottoman Society. So that means you must have an interest in, in birds. How did, did that come across sort of second or was it first? Hey, I like birds. Here's how I can study them. Or I like ecology and birds are a cool species to study or a cool uh, clay, whatever the right term is. Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, for me, um, it wasn't just birds. I mean, I've always been interested in um in wildlife and the environment in general. Um, and so actually my dream when I was a kid was um, to be Jane Goodall. Oh, sure. I was in primates, <laughs> um, but you know, life takes t- different turns and, and I ended up um, in the environmental field and that led me to the Audubon Society and now I study birds. Very cool. And so, uh, yeah, like I said in the intro, I'm learning more and more about birds. I, I know squat about them, um, but that's okay. Uh, but one reason that birds are important, in addition to being interesting and beautiful and all of that, is that uh, they use a lot of valuable habitat, right? Uh, and and when you're studying birds, I, I think you're also studying things like wetlands and marshes and, and, and what have you. Uh, so why are... And, and so some of your work has been trying to prioritize that, right? Looking at different marshes or wetlands and trying to prioritize um, those for conservation in the case of limited resources. But why are coastal wetlands important for birds? What, uh, what, are, they, what are they using for? Yeah, so um, marsh birds uh, are essentially use coastal wetlands or any wetlands for um, different stages of their life history. Some of them are uh, what we call obligate uh, marsh species. So they they spend um, just about all their entire life cycle in marshes. So uh, foraging, breeding, resting, um, you know, basically every oh, aspect yeah. of life is in the marsh. Then there are some species that, that only use marshes for part of their life cycle. So maybe they'll just breed in the marsh or, or forage in the marsh, but then they spend other parts of their life elsewhere. Uh-huh. And is in that, any case, for most birds, it's it's a critical for marsh birds in general. It's a it's a critical piece of their of their life cycle. Right, and so in a sense, you're using it. So, for example, red winged blackbirds, which are these really obnoxious birds that I love uh, because their coloration is just so uh, striking, um, and because the males are just ridiculous. Uh, they will stand on like a tree and go. Bah, bah, 
just like be obnoxious. It's like, oh, chill out, man. Um, but I like that. You know, if you're going to come, come strong. But so they'll, they'll like fly around in the sort of the local marsh, the celery bug, we call it here. Uh, but they'll also be in cornfields or whatever. So are, would those be marsh birds by your definition or is that something else? Uh, those are wetland birds. Okay. Yeah, they, they mostly use wetlands exactly, um, and they're they're pretty ubiquitous. They're they're kind of they're kind of everywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so those are those are wetland birds. I would call okay. them. Okay. Yep. And then some of the obli- so obligate. I assume that's just from that word like obligated or obliged. So they have to stay there or else uh, they die exactly. horrible death. I guess. Uh, so what are some examples of those? Just so I can put some links in the show notes for our listeners. Oh, let's see. So there are these. Um, Marsh bird, this type of marsh bird called secretive marsh birds. Ooh. Yeah, they're they're hard to find. For <laughs> you can tell from the name that they 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 hide in the marshes and they they don't vocalize very often. Um, and so a lot of these are obligates. They're like the bitterns and the grebes and rails, uh, animals like that. Right. Well, I'm putting these on my to find life list. I will find a secretive marsh bird and report back. That's great. Cool. And so, yeah, I'm from the Southeast. I was born and raised and, and moved here a couple of years ago. And so when I think of like wetlands and stuff, I think of like the coastal swamps we had in, in uh, New Orleans where, or in Louisiana where I grew up. Uh, and then, you know, throughout like Florida and Alabama, Mississippi and all that. But so around the Great Lakes, so there, I assume there are just a ton of wetlands here. I mean, we got the lakes, right? Um uh, but, but, uh, are there different types when you're thinking about these, do you classify the wetlands too? What are the different ways that you look at those? Yeah. So there are, um, different types of wetlands and specifically in the great lakes, um, there's three different types. Uh, there's, um, barrier wetlands, which are more, uh, protected and they're, um, you know, they're found in, in, uh, where there's barrier islands protecting them from the open water. Uh, then you've got lacustrine wetlands, which are more uh, open to the to the lake itself, although not um, not completely. They're more in bays. Uh, and then there's also um, riverine wetlands, which are mo- mostly found at, at the mouths of, of rivers where they open up into the lake. And if uh, viewers, I almost always call them readers, and I about did it again. Uh, If readers or viewers are interested in learning more, uh, go ahead and look down at your podcast player right now, and we'll have some links in the show notes to to some resources about those. That's great. And so we have this variation in different types. And so part of what what you work on is trying to prioritize these for conservation. And so if they need to be conserved, that means there's threats, right? Now, I'm going to guess that the threats are things we hear about a lot, like climate change, uh, runoff, eutrophication, those sorts of things. Are those like the big picture threats? Are there other ones that that I'm not thinking of? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, sea level rise is huge. Um, Human development obviously has been one of the biggest problems over the the past you know 100 years um of course there's pollution invasive species oh yeah fragmentation drainage of wetlands all kinds of things but yeah mostly the usual suspects yeah yeah i hear that and so so uh when you're trying to think about this you're trying to prioritize wetlands across the great lakes for conservation i mean you're talking about trade-offs and uh essentially or what are the things that go into trying to even approach that problem it seems impossible to me, frankly, because, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, if you think about the Great Lakes, I go from what Minnesota over to New York, essentially, plus we have Canada. Uh, and, and so I don't even know how you would begin to investigate that problem. So what what are kind of the thoughts that go into that? 
Yeah. So, you know, of course, everybody comes at prioritization from their own perspective. And, and since I work at the National Audubon Society, our perspective is mainly around the birds. And so we use birds in general as indicators of healthy systems. Um, you know, so so for us, marsh birds, um, marsh birds really tell us where the important wetlands are just by how they're distributed already in the environment. Um, you know, and a lot of them are still in places that are highly modified, you know, very urbanized areas. But at some point, you know, we need to just we need to be careful that we don't cross a line at, at which those species then move out of those areas. So so a lot of our um, priority sites that we found were in, in highly urbanized areas. And those, I think, are pretty important to, to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And so so I take it you did some modeling here, right? Um, yep. Probably some, I'm going to guess, some spatial, ecolo spatial ecological modeling, I suppose. And and yeah. and so you put variables into there, I guess, right? What like and so some of that's going to be from this satellite data. What kind of variables, to the extent that you can explain it to people like me, uh, what what type of variables go in into your models? Yeah. So um, so like I said, we we study uh, we study these things from the thirty thousand foot view. So so um, our our environmental data that went into the models were things like. Um, you know, we look at we look at sort of a an area around every every point where we collect bird data, and we and we can tell from satellite imagery what kinds of land uses are happening in that area. So we look at things like proportion of agriculture within this, within the area that's being surveyed, or proportion of um, impervious surfaces, proportion of open water, or proportion of different habitat wetland vegetation types like herbaceous vegetation or woody vegetation. Um, we also looked at lake levels over time. Um, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it, I think. Okay. Oh, and also invasive species. We had some information on the distribution of Phragmites across the coastal wetlands. Phragmites. Oh. Let's pretend for the sake of our listeners and not because it's true at all that I don't know what Phragmites is. <laughs> yeah, so it's a common reed. It's an invasive species and it's everywhere and it and it's a very big problem for wetlands because it, it really basically pushes out native species and creates these like walls of, of reeds. Mm -hmm. I see. And so so you're looking at kind of the habitat characteristics of these areas. Is this agriculture land? Is it impervious? So is it concrete or you know uh, exactly. buildings or whatever? Yeah. Um, parking lots uh, and vegetation and stuff. And, and so you sort of assign a score essentially. Uh, is that a fair way to put it to these different variables? Yeah. And then yeah, eventually we get, it's, there's a bunch of different phases in the modeling and eventually we do get to the, to the point where, um, where we figure out where every species could potentially inhabit what would be a suitable um, habitat for every bird that we're modeling. And then, and then we use that information to assign a score to that particular site, depending on how many species are using it and how, and what abundance is. And then when it comes time to like investing resources, it's just a question of then looking at you know, the score and various other factors, I guess, uh, you know, maybe there's p political factors, which it sounds like maybe you didn't account for. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we don't get too into the, the political piece of it. Um, at least I don't in my, in my work, that's, we have a whole department yeah. that handles that piece, but we, um, but yeah, we look at things like whether it's already protected or not. Um, 
that's a big piece. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, that, does, that doesn't answer the whole question, because even if it's protected on paper, it doesn't really mean it's it's actually right. being protected. There's protected so, and yeah. the nurse, right? Protected. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And so one thing, when I think about models and modeling, um, uh, one one question that I think comes up a lot that's fair is like uncertainty. So you're doing all this stuff from afar. Uh, I think you're, are you in New York? Is that right? Or DC? I'm actually in Massachusetts. You know, if you give me four or five guesses, I'll remember. It was just yesterday when I looked it up in Massachusetts. You're there in Massachusetts. It's a Great Lakes state. Yeah. At least. No, it's not. It's connected to a Great nope. Lakes state. I'm going to delete that so I don't look like a moron. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So that the full extent of my moronity is not revealed. Um, but so you're in Massachusetts and you're getting all these data. So, so like, there's gotta be uncertainty, right? How can you, how can you know that? Or you can't know, but like, how do you deal with that uncertainty? I suppose um, when you're doing this kind of work. Yeah, that's, that's a huge issue. Um, and we have lots of ways of, of sort of quantifying uncertainty, but, and there are lots and lots of sources of uncertainty. <laughs> um uh, they're in, you know, there's uncertainty in every single data set that we include in our models, right? From down to like, did we actually count the number of birds that were there? Did we see them all? Did we, um, you know, what's the resolution of the of the satellite data? And and how are how is the information classified? There's tons of uncertainty, and so because this is so pervasive in in my work, I like to always think about a quote from. Um, a statistician named George Box. George and what he Box. Said, George Box, yes. He um, he said, I think it was back in the 70s, he said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> so I like to I like to think about that whenever I produce a model and wonder about the uncertainty. And you know, another thing he said, I'll just I'll quote this because I think it's so it's just so perfect. Since all models are wrong. The scientists must be alert to what is importantly wrong. It is inappropriate to be concerned about mice when there are tigers abroad. So, <laughs> so in my mind, this means, you know, we're, we're in the middle of the sixth extinction crisis, right? Three billion birds have been lost since the 1970s. We're, everything's a mess. We need to take action now with the best information that we have available. So, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to get these models as as right as they can possibly be, and but we know they're never they're never really truly accurate. Um, but it's the best information we have right now, and and we need to act on it. And what's the worst that can happen? So we protect maybe an area that doesn't have the most species. It's okay. We protected it. We protected something. Mm -hmm. So I you know I don't worry too much about about how wrong yeah. the models are as long as. You know, we get the basics right. That reminds me of another quote that I use all the time, which has been attributed to everybody. But I'll say John Maynard Keynes, and that is, it's it's better to be uh, roughly right than precisely wrong. Uh, there you go. Yeah. That's a great one. And so, uh, so, so you would say then that your modeling, of course, there's errors and uncertainty, but it is useful. Uh, it is roughly right in that it, it, it gives kind of a framework for thinking about these problems. Or am I putting exactly. the wrong words into your mouth? I apologize if so. No, no, no. I think that's perfect. I, I think it's great. And, and, and a lot of the way I think about uh, these types of models are that they're, they're kind of initial screenings, you know, like we can't go out and, and survey every wetland in the Great Lakes mm -hmm. and figure out what's really, what really needs protecting and what really needs restoration. I mean, it's just, there's no time to do that kind of work. So we use this, this remote data to get sort of a, um, 
a first uh, sort of screening of, of the whole landscape and what that looks like. And then we can go in and, in a more targeted way on the, in the field and actually try to validate some of this stuff. What, what blows my mind thinking about it is that this is even doable, though. Like, like your field can't be that old in terms of, or at least the types of stuff you work on, right? Because this satellite stuff has to have been available for it to, to work. It's true. It's true. We do, you know, at this point have data, satellite data back to the 70s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been, the information's been around for a while and it, it just it continues to exponentially, um, you know, get better and and there's more of it um, and it's more available. So the, the field is really just, you know, kind of exploding. Yeah. So how is the, and this is a tangent, so I apologize for that. Other than I think it's interesting. Um, so how does that change? Like, like, I mean, as technology just keeps getting crazier and crazier, right? In terms of what they can do. Now there's the internet of things, which as far as I know, is not actually a thing, but maybe it is. Um, it sure is a buzzword you can put in your proposals. And, uh, so, so like, what is, what does this look like in 10 years? Do you think in terms of what, what, what is technology going to enable you to, what questions are you going to be able to answer, do you think, in like 10, 15 years that you maybe can't approach now uh, as technology moves? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I, I think that um, over the next uh, in the future, I think that things are going to move more toward automation of monitoring. Um, you know, like now we spend a lot of time and resources paying people to go out into the field and collect um, collect data on biodiversity and and endangered species. And in the future, you know, there are going to be things um, and they're coming, they're starting already to, to be available, like acoustic monitoring techniques, where you could just put a recorder out into the middle of nowhere and have it collect all the data on animals and, and their sounds and create these soundscapes that then we can then take back to the lab and analyze without ever having to send somebody out into the field, except to put the recorder out. Hmm. Things like that, I think, are going to really revolutionize. Yeah, that reminds me of some of the work that Brian Pijanowski here at Purdue is doing. Um, what does he call his thing? Oh, boy. Soundscapes. Yeah, his Soundscapes project that he does uh, is, is all into that. That's that's really Yeah, really cool stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating to see where that goes. On my field in social science, like I feel like there are smarter people than me who are going to figure this out in terms of how to use technology to collect data. Um, they'll be really useful as survey response rates keep going down. Um, but, yeah. uh, it's an exciting yeah. time, a, a terrifying time, um, but an exciting time too. Okay. Uh, good. Well, so thinking about birds and, and, uh, wetlands degradations and stuff like that. So uh, if people are really worried about that, um, what are some things they can do? I know the my, the challenge is it's these big problems. Like I can't do squat, um, about, uh, deforestation or, you know, uh, like, uh, climate change as an individual, it's really hard to do, but are there steps that people can take, um, in, in your opinion? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's sort of cliche, but like every little thing that, that every person does kind of adds up to something bigger. Right. And, um, you know, I think one of the important things to think about, especially if you're concerned with coastal wetlands, you know, is if you're, if you're lucky enough to be, or maybe unlucky enough to be one of those people who has coastal property at this point, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's really important to, to think about things like um, living shorelines. If you're trying to mitigate, um, you know, impacts of sea level rise, not to just go ahead and put up a concrete bulkhead, but, but use, use living shoreline techniques that stabilize the earth with natural materials and also provide habitat for animals. So they provide these important co-benefits for both animals and people. Um, so that's one thing that people can think about. Um, you know, obviously the usual ways to protect the environment, like not using toxic chemicals and, you know, flushing them into the, into the groundwater or um, 
things like that. There's also, um, you know, ways to, to if you want to really do something more uh, on the ground, you could volunteer for Audubon Great Lakes and go out and, and help clean up the wetlands. Um, they have these these uh, stewardship volunteers there that that are always welcome. Obviously, not happening during a pandemic, but <laughs> hopefully one day this will be over and we can get back to work there. If not, we won't have to worry about it. So that's fine. Uh, well, that's <laughs> wait, this went dark. I apologize. Let me pull it back. <laughs> I usually do that. I'm glad you did. <laughs> um, no, those do sound like some concrete steps. And boy, you're speaking my language for some of that. I will put a link in the show notes to my, the webinar that I led on living shorelines back when I was at Texas Sea Grant. Uh, oh, so great. That, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, okay, one more question that was not on the initial list, but now I'm curious. is uh, So in my work life, my job is to uh, really look at the subtleties of sort of the human experience and people's attitudes and opinions. And so in the rest of my life, I like to not look at those subtleties. So I'm just going to want you to name something here. Uh, no subtlety. What is... The best bird. The best bird. Yep, yep. You got to crush, crush the hearts of almost every bird out there, and then I'll tell you okay. the actual answer. Yeah. This is a terrible question, yep. but I guess I'm gonna say the wood thrush. Wood thrush. Tell me why it's the best bird. I love the wood thrush because I love its song. It sounds like a flute. Really. Yes. And if you, you can go online and find recordings of it. It's just the most beautiful sound. And I, I hear it all the time around my house. Um, and it's just that familiar sound that I, that I just, I just love to hear. All right. Wood thrush. I will put that in the uh, show notes. We'll put links to it and I will listen to some wood thrush. We're recording this on a Friday behind the scenes. So this afternoon I will be listening to wood thrush songs. Yeah. Well, Joanna, this has all been really interesting, but that's actually not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. We invited you to teach me about the Great Lakes, ask these two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to either have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? This is a timely question, actually. <laughs> we aim to, aim to serve here. <laughs> I was just, so I'll answer the question and I'll tell you why it's timely. It's uh, for me, I would go with the great sandwich for lunch. And it's timely because my, my son and I have been really researching very hard um, how to, whether we can find a panini maker that's non-toxic oh. because we love paninis. And apparently it, this is such a thing does not exist. Mm. They all have Teflon and, and I won't buy things with Teflon. So <laughs> I struggle. I struggle to make a great panini. Yeah, that is a big challenge. We, we, we've had the same issue with like waffle makers. Uh, yes. And I found one that was made out of cast aluminum um, by some company. Uh, but I still think it had a secret coating on it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's always something. It's always a secret. Cast iron. I think cast iron's your best bet. Yeah, yeah. I've got a cast iron griddle, but no cast mm -hmm. iron. I could just put the cast iron pan on top of the cast iron griddle. It will crush my stove, uh, but but you get a nice panini. So that's good. Yeah, absolutely. That could work. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, and then, um, oh, I forgot the critical follow-ups. So you're in Massachusetts. Are you in the Boston area or... No, I'm in the Western Massachusetts. Okay, so there are other areas in Massachusetts. Okay, uh, so when I'm visiting your area, where can I go to get, other than the panini at your house, where can I go uh, to get a really great sandwich? Well, that's the problem. We don't have a great sandwich place here. Oh, 
I've, I've been complaining about this. I've been living in this area for about 10 years yeah. and I've been complaining and nobody's listening. You're in a sandwich desert. It's just, you hate to hear yeah, it. Yeah, I think so. I hate to hear it. Yeah, same here in West Lafayette for pizza. There's not a single good piece of pizza in this whole town. Uh, oh, but the people who grow up here don't believe me and I'm like, trust me, there's no good pizza. And, no, I've tried it. It's no <laughs> good. Yeah. With, right? I know the place you're talking about. It's not good pizza. Um, hello, Ethan, if you're listening. All right. Uh, great. And our second question is, what is one piece of life advice that you have for our listeners? It can be big or little, serious or silly. We've had people, you know, quote RuPaul. People give the advice they give to their graduate students or their children. Sometimes it's the same. Uh, so um, whatever you think, we just like to leave the listeners with something to reflect on as they close out the podcast. Yeah, I guess I would say... Um that my advice is to learn one new thing every day. I like it. I'm writing it down as we speak. And today I've learned about the uh, beautiful wood thrush song that I will spend the next few minutes reveling in after this. Uh, That's perfect. Yeah. You're done for the day. Done for the day. Good. Go find a panini and take a nap. Uh, excellent. Well, <laughs> Joanna Grant, where can people go if they want to find out more about the work that you're doing? Oh, yeah. I think... Um, Go to our website for sure, the National Audubon Society website. We have a, um, a page specifically dedicated for the science work that, that happens at Audubon. So a lot of it is covered there. Um, yeah, that's the best that's the best way to get the best way to get the information. Yep. Well, perfect. Uh, we will enjoy doing that then. Joanna Grand, a senior spatial ecologist for the National Audubon Society. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us about the Great Lakes. Thank you. It's good to be here. great uh thank you to joanna for coming on and thank you to you for listening i encourage you to follow us on social media feeds you can find illinois indiana sea grant uh all over social media at i l i n c grant you can follow the show on twitter at teach great lakes and of course i encourage you to check out the sea grant webpage at iicgrant.org um and that's all we got for this week we'll see you the first monday of every month and the third mondays of most months uh, thanks, stay safe, and keep great in those lakes. And I was like, well, shoot, let's kill two birds with one. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> let's catch two uh two marshes with one satellite and uh <laughs> <There you go. laughs>